Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and today on the show... I am answering all of your most pressing Georgia sports questions, and we're back on the football train, guys. We took a one-episode interlude into the realm of Georgia basketball, but we're back on the football train today. At least most of these questions are football-centric. I think, actually, we do have one basketball question. Uh, Yeah, just one basketball question. Everything else is all football, so we're back on the train. I told you guys, football fix, it's going to be here all off-season long. Most other podcasts, at least football-heavy podcasts, go dark in the off-season. You might get a random episode here and there, but not us, guys. We are going to be here all off-season long. If you've been with us for a long time, you know that, but we've got some newer listeners this year, and I just want to make sure you guys know Keep on coming back. If you're jonesing for some football content, this is the place to come. We've got you guys covered all off-season long. In fact, this week, we've got two football episodes for you guys. And honestly, most weeks, it'll be two football episodes. But every now and then, we'll throw some other Georgia sports out there at you guys like we did last week. But we're back on the football train, and we never stray too far from that. Because that's number one in our hearts, and we also know it's number one in your hearts as well. And look, guys, I mean, it's been almost a month, almost a month since we've answered any mailbag questions on the show, and they keep coming in. They keep flooding in. They are not stopping, so I figured it was time to try to put at least a little bit of a dent into those questions. I've got a long list. By now, I mean, it's it's over a page long. I've got a long list of questions to get to. I keep updating them as they come in, and I promise you, even if we don't get to your question today, we will get to it. I promise. We're going to get to all of them throughout the course of the offseason. We've got plenty of time to do that. Nothing but time, really. But in the meantime, anytime you have a question that comes up or you think of something that you just want to hear us discuss on the podcast, hit us up with it. Let us know. You can hit us up on Twitter. That's at glory underscore UGA. You can email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram. You can DM us there. And that's just Glory UGA Podcast on Instagram. And of course, some questions, I mean, this happens sometimes. I feel bad, but some questions are just a little bit more topical than others. So when they come in, we do, I'll be honest with you, we do try to push those to the front of the line so that we can cover them in a timely fashion. But just have some patience with us. Again, 
We value each and every one of you guys. All your questions are fantastic. And I mean that, really. All the questions we get, they're all fantastic. And we will cover them at some point in this offseason, hopefully sooner rather than later. But let's try to put a dent in those today. Curtis is going to be back with me later this week for a recruiting deep dive that I've teased a few times over the past month or so. And Charlie, I mean, who knows where Charlie is? She's MIA, man. Who knows? Um, There's missing person flyers all over Athens with her face on her right now. So if she ever turns up, maybe we'll get her back on here at some point, maybe, possibly. I don't know. We'll see. But no, in all seriousness, Charlie's just taking some much-deserved time off right now. We'll have her back here probably like maybe even next week, week after. But the season, I mean, guys, it's it's just a grind for a group of people who operate, who have full-time jobs. Well, I guess Curtis, I guess being in law school is a full-time job, right? We'll go with that. But it, when you have a full-time job and you're trying to run a podcast and during the season, we run four episodes a week, almost every single day of the week. It's a grind. It's a lot because we got to prep for that, and then we got to record it, then we got to edit it, and then get it uploaded. It's just a timely process. It takes a lot of time, and uh, it's a grind. So by the end of the season, trust me, we're all kind of just like obviously we love Georgia football more than anything else in the world, but at the end of the season, we're also kind of just dead. We're just dead. I mean, it sucks that football's over. But we get to take a little bit of a deep breath, and Charlie's just taking a little bit of an extended deep breath. Actually, she was going to be on this episode. That was the plan. But she texted me earlier today, and she was like, I'm sorry, but I just I just can't. I just can't today. Just one of those days. But I promise you, I know if you had some people that been asking about her, wondering where she is, she's, she's around, guys. She's around, and uh, we will have her back on here in the next week or so. We got some Georgia tennis to talk about. We had the National Women's Indoor Tournament this past weekend, and we got the National Men's Indoor Tournament coming up. And as much as I love Georgia tennis, as big of a fan as I am, Charlie's actually a bigger fan. I mean, the woman even has a customized Saturdays are for Georgia tennis shirt that she wears to all the matches. In fact, she wears it in the offseason, even when there aren't matches. But she's a huge fan, and we got some tennis to talk about. So she'll definitely be on here for that. And she'll be on here for any number of episodes moving forward. She's she's around. She's around. I know people have been wondering if she is still alive. I can, I can attest, at least according to text message, she is still alive. We'll get her back on here sooner rather than later. But for today, I'm here to answer all of your pressing Georgia sports questions, at least as many as I can get to in the amount of time I have to actually record today. And we're going to start, let's go ahead and kick this off. We're going to start with John. I think this is a great opening question. Uh, John asks, what are realistic expectations for next season? There's so many defensive departures for the draft, major offensive pieces going to the draft or transferring, and the probable outcome of Stetson Bennett leading the team again. Should 10-2 be the expectation? John, I love you, man. I always appreciate your questions, your thoughts, your interaction on social media. But I got to say, man, you must have been hanging out with Curtis, man, because that is a Curtis thought if I've ever heard one. And look, you might be right, man. Like 10 and 2, maybe, maybe that's where we end up. I can't sit here and say that that won't be the case. But honestly, and I, look, I know that we covered this a little bit last week. We did our way to early 2022 Georgia football preview. And I asked Curtis a very similar question. The question I asked him was phrased a little bit differently. I think what I asked him was, is it realistic for Georgia fans to expect the dogs to go back to back and actually defend our 2021 national title next season? And Curtis didn't even hesitate, didn't even think about it for a second, just instantly was like, no, that's not realistic. And, and he had some good thoughts to back up that position. I mean, it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility for 10 and 2 to happen. But first off, like just 
you might on first blush here, my first thought is where are the losses? If you look at our 2022 schedule, I mean, really, where are those losses? You got Oregon week one. I mean, Oregon will be a tough game. I Right now, I'm not sure about their quarterback position. You know, Ty Thompson was the big-time recruit they brought in last year, and he was supposed to be the heir apparent. Then obviously, there's a change in the entire coaching staff, and you bring in a new system. Joe Moorhead, who uh, was a guy that really was high on Ty Thompson because he fit his system, he's gone now. So is where does he fit in the mix there? And you got Bo Nix coming in. You guys know how I feel about Bo Nix. If Bo Nix is your grand plan, I don't know, man. Like, really, are we going to expect Bo Nix to fit with that Oregon team right away and beat us in Georgia? I know it's not in Athens, but in the state of Georgia, it's obviously going to be a partisan crowd. I don't know if I see that. I mean, Oregon has some good pieces on defense. I love their inside linebackers with Justin Flo and Noah Sewell. Those guys are studs. But Kayvon Thibodeau, the most dominant player on that defense, he's gone. And Oregon recruits well relative to the Pac-12, but they don't recruit on our level. So, I mean, that's certainly possible week one, certainly with some of the losses that we have on defense. And there's the familiarity factor with Dan Landing, him knowing what we do and us having to change things to kind of account for that. They're, they're, I'm not going to say it's impossible for us to lose that game, but right now going into Saturday, September 3rd, which cannot get here fast enough, I got to think we, we're the favorite hanging that game, a pretty comfortable favorite, not a, maybe a prohibitive favorite, but a comfortable favorite. I've heard people point at South Carolina, that game week three against South Carolina in Columbia. I mean, I know people are high on them the way they end the season, you know, winning a bowl game, getting actually finishing strong, getting into a bowl game, then beating North Carolina. And then you get Spencer Rattler and the Cox are crowing, man. The Cox are crowing once again. And that is a tough place to play. I will grant them that. I just don't see us losing at South Carolina. I just think we're, at this point, our roster is just far superior to their roster, even with their transfer portal additions, even with our losses. We've just been recruiting at such a, such a higher level for years and years now that there's no reason that we should lose that football game. It'll be tougher than it has been. Yeah, maybe potentially. But we still should win that football game. At Missouri, tricky spot. I think we're going to beat Missouri. We're just better. Auburn, come on. Auburn's a train wreck right now. We're not losing them at home. Vanderbilt, okay, move on. Florida, maybe in a couple years. Again, just just like same with South Carolina. Their roster is not there right now. Same thing for Tennessee at home. Their roster is not there. I know they're really, really excited about getting Hendon Hooker back. And you've got some weapons at receiver. But guys, their defense was a disaster last season. And I'm sure it'll be small steps better this year but it's in Athens we are a better football team and they're not catching us early so no I don't think Tennessee's again Mississippi State is one we'll get into this more as we get into the offseason that's a tricky spot in my opinion honestly at Mississippi State at Kentucky to close out the SEC schedule that's a pretty tricky way to close out the SEC Mississippi State is going to be a good football team. I'm not ready to say very good, but they're a dangerous team at home facing the defending national champions. That's going to be a Rockets environment. You know the cowbell is going to be ringing and blaring like you're at a high school football game, but that's going to be a tricky spot at Kentucky. Kentucky's a really good football team, a good program. We are better than Kentucky. We are better than Mississippi State, but on the road, defending national champion coming in. You can get the Alabama treatment. Everybody's going to be hyped up. Good chance both those games are at night. That can be tough. We're going to have to respond there. So look, and then Georgia Tech, I'm not even going to address Georgia Tech, but 10 and 2, where are the losses? I mean, I, I just, I don't honestly, even with our departures on demons, and I get that we're losing a lot of big time players, but I just don't see two losses on that schedule. 11 and 1, that's very realistic. That certainly could happen. We could trip up somewhere. There's no doubt. 
But 10 and 2, I just I don't see two losses on that schedule. And I just gotta go back a little bit to what I was talking about last week. And I, I kind of allowed Curtis to run with that question. I didn't throw too much out there. I tried to to challenge him a little bit with some of the offensive numbers because Curtis is like a lot of people out there. And look, I, it makes sense. You think about okay, we're losing a lot on defense, so offensively, we're going to have to take a step forward and compensate for those defensive losses. And the general public, I think the perception of our offense last year was it wasn't that good. Stetson Bennett wasn't good. Our offense wasn't explosive. Our offense was carried to a national championship by our defense. Our offense was able to do just enough. And that's just not how I see our offense from 2021. And statistically, that's just not reality. I mean, if you look at the numbers, mostly advanced metrics out there, we were a borderline elite offense last year. We were top five in yards per play. And I, I, threw, I threw this out there last week. That's almost a half yard better than what Bama was, right? Everyone talks about how great Bama's offense was. We were almost a half yard better than Bama in yards per play last season. We were top 10 scoring offense. Yeah, Bama was a little bit higher than us, but only three spots ahead of us, only 1.3 points per game ahead of us. And we were also the third ranked S&P plus offense in the country last year. So all those advanced metrics, we were a borderline, if not straight up elite offense. But because we didn't throw the ball 30, 40 times a game and Stetson Bennett was our quarterback, a former walk-on, it kind of skewed people's perception of what our offense was. And as I said last week, I firmly believe our offense is going to take a step forward this season, even though I think that we were, as I said, borderline elite last season. I mean, you think about the skill players we have coming back who were young and leading us last year. Brock Bowers, I mean, I know he had a little, he had labor, not a little, there's no little labrum surgery, but he had to fix his labrum. He's going to be out for the spring. But that guy was a true freshman last year and was the best tight end in Georgia history as a true freshman. That guy's back. Darnell Washington, as of right now, is back. A.D. Mitchell, who emerges our number one receiving option down the stretch, is back. You're going to get Arian Smith back healthy. Now, he's got to stay healthy, but he's going to be back healthy. Marcus Rosemey Jackson, back healthy. Lad McConkey back. Kyrus Jackson, back for a full healthy season, knock on wood, hopefully. We got, I know we're losing Zeus and James Cook, but I love the, the combo of Kenny McIntosh and Kendall Milton. If Milton can stay healthy, I also think the offensive line is going to be better. I know that's kind of strange. Some people kind of look at me kind of askew and say, huh, you're losing two starters, three starters on the offensive line. One of those is probably going to be a second round-ish draft pick in Jamari Salyer, and you're going to be better on the offensive line. But guys, I go back to what I told you all last season. Our best, most talented offensive linemen were underclassmen that just weren't quite ready to crack the starting lineup. Broderick Jones was making a push. He was pushing, trying to crack that lineup all season long, filled in admirably when asked to due to injuries. And he's going to be the guy next year. And as good as Jamari Salyer was for us, Roger Jones has a higher upside. Now, he's got to continue to get bigger and stronger, but the physical athletic upside is just higher. Amarius Mims, if he can find his way in the starting lineup, whether it's a guard or tackle, that's an upgrade over Justin Schaefer. That's an upgrade over Warren Erickson, who, God bless him, as I've said many times, was a center trying to play guard. It's not his fault. He did the best he could, but he was just undersized playing there. Cameron Kinney is another guy that I've heard a lot of, not as highly rated, but a guy that's really come on uh, towards the end of last season. I think he's going to be in the in the middle of that conversation at guard. So I think we're going to be better on the offensive line. I think we have better skill talent. And at quarterback, I get the premise of your question, John. I really do. The idea that, like, God, like, yeah, we may do with this former walk-on who is able to do enough for us to skate by and get by and win a national title. But, like, was that kind of just, like, lightning in a bottle kind of thing? Can we really expect to win a national title with Stetson Bennett as our quarterback if that dominant defense is no longer as dominant as it once was? But I would just go back to what I, again, what I said last week, 
in terms of what we were able to do offensively. Stetson, look, was Stetson elite last year? No, I don't think Stetson was an elite quarterback, but Stetson was far better than most people want to get give him credit for. He was third nationally in QBR, made a significant leap from 2020, going from 78.6 QBR to 86.7 QBR. His completion percentage went from 55.5% to 64.5%, almost a 10% jump in completion percentage. Now, does Stetson still make some tough decisions at times? Does he still have trouble reading post-snap coverage changes? Yeah, at times, and balls get away from him at times, but Stetson, by and large, was very, very good for us last year, much better than he was for us in 2020, and he did that without essentially getting any reps the ones all spring, all summer, in fact, we remember vividly because we had a lot of questions about this when it happened. Carson Beck was announced. Kirby never does this, but announced him as the, as the backup guy, as the number two quarterback. And then when JT goes down, it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know what? We're comfortable with Stetson. We're going to go with Stetson. Then he started to get reps for the ones. It wasn't until that point, and he still made that big of a jump. So what kind of jump? If Stetson ends up winning the job, I do think it's going to be an open competition, as I've said. But if he does end up winning the job again, what kind of jump can we expect him to make going into 2022 with an entire offseason of number one quarterback reps under his belt. That's a very intriguing prospect to me. And here's the other thing about the offense. that I, We didn't really touch on this last week, I don't think at all. But our offense was what it had to be based off of how good our defense was. We played complementary football. And we still were able to put over 40 points a game. But we played complementary football to our defense. And yes, the defense is what led the team last year. But that doesn't mean the offense could not put up points and put teams away because that's exactly what we did. And think about how many times last year we just got a huge lead and offensively we just kind of went into a shell and we're just trying to run the ball out, do the Kirby special, run the ball out, try to get to the next game, nobody get hurt. How many times do that? Basically every single week. We just weren't even really challenged in the regular season outside of week one against Clemson. So I do believe if our offense was called upon to go out and win a football game, win multiple football games next year, which we might, because I I do agree that we are going to take a little bit of a step back defensively. I think that's maybe a little bit oversold right now because we have so much talent built up waiting in the wings. But when you lose guys like Quay Walker and N'Kobe Dean and Channing Tindall and Trayvon Walker and Darion Kendrick and Lewisine and, of, of course, Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt, it's going to be hard to replace all of those guys. I understand that. I acknowledge that. I admit that. But we are in as good a position, probably a better position than anyone in the country to replace those kind of guys. Now, will we do it to the level that we were at last year? No, I can't sit here and say that. But I really do like the core that we return with guys like Nolan Smith and Chris Smith and Keely Ringo and Jalen Carter. I think it's a really strong core of players. And we have, like I said, a bunch of guys that's been waiting their turn, whether it's Mikhail Sherman, Jamon Dumas-Johnson, Zion Lowe, all those guys. So I do think our defense is going to be just fine. I think our defense will be one of the best teams in the country. Probably not up to what we were last year, but still one of the best teams in the country. But even, even if we aren't that dominant on defense, but I think last year our offense, if necessary, if needed, could have gone out and, and done that. I just don't think we had to because our defense was so dominant. I mean, look at the, the national championship game, right? I mean, I know we didn't put up, you know, 40, 50 points. We scored 33 points. I know one, one of those was a pick six, obviously, that last score. But when we had to have it late in the game, we were able to put together a couple of drives offensively and go down there, take the lead, and win the football game. And I think that we're going to be better on offense in 2022, even if it's Stetson Bennett at quarterback, which I know some people still like Curtis. God bless him. Love the guy. He just cannot get over 
Stetson Bennett being a former walk-on, and I don't know if he'll ever fully embrace that. But again, Stetson, by and large, was very good for us last year. And even if you don't like the offensive formula that we run with Stetson, you have to admit, just look at the numbers, that formula was very successful. Again, I'll go back and read the numbers one more time. Just a taste of them. Top five yards per play, top 10 scoring offense, third rank S&P plus. Stetson was top five in yards per pass attempt. Even if you don't like that formula and you want us to be more up-tempo, throwing the ball 30, 40 times a game, even if you don't like that formula, you got to admit it was successful last year. And I think we have even better players and players that are even more experienced and more developed and ready to contribute even more going into 2022. So while I'm certainly not ready to sit here and predict us to win the SEC and certainly not ready to predict us to repeat as national champions right now, I also don't think that's out of the question. And honestly, I would say I would lean more towards us being 12-0 and again in 2022 in the regular season than I would 10 and 2. But we love you, John. Always appreciate you, man. And thank you for that question. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, let's go ahead. Spend a lot of time on that one. Let's move on here, and let's get to it. This is a fun question. It's from our good friend Josh. Josh, we love you too, man. Always appreciate it, buddy. Josh asks, who would you rather have as wide receiver one, George Pickens or A.J. Green? And I know on the surface, this probably seems like a tough question for a lot of people out there. But for me, honestly, like right off the bat, I'm just going to say A.J. Green. For me personally, this is not that difficult of a question. I love and I appreciate George Pickens. I just feel like A.J. Green was on another level. George has been really good for us, or he was really good for us, but AJ was that dude right off the bat. And don't get me wrong, George is really good as a freshman too. Honestly, his best season, at least statistically, was his true freshman season. George put up 49 catches, 727 yards, eight touchdowns as a true freshman. AJ was just better in my opinion. And that, that was also an era where offenses weren't as dynamic and evolved as they are now. The offensive revolution had not quite hit yet. The spread offense and its principles had not quite permeated all the way throughout college football at that time. So I think you have to factor that in as well. But as a freshman, AJ put 56 catches, 963 yards, eight touchdowns. And then he followed up in 2009 with, by the way, Joe Cox as his quarterback, 
Joe Cox is a quarterback, put up 53 catches, 808 yards. He missed a couple games in 2010 to start the season. Still managed to put up 57 catches, 848 yards. Had 23 cut, 23 touchdowns throughout his career. And George, I mean, it's not his fault, obviously, but he had some injuries he had to deal with throughout his career, especially this season when he missed basically the entire year and put up 107 yards on the, on the season, five catches total. So that certainly kind of hamstrung him there from a, a statistical standpoint. But even if you want to go beyond that and go eye test, I just think AJ was a more impressive athlete. What made George so great as a receiver? What makes George great is his ability to go up and just dominate and win the 50-50 ball with regularity, which a lot of players cannot do. I think that's one of the things that separates a good receiver from a great receiver. That's one of the reasons I do think that George is a great receiver. He's a great college receiver because he can make those spectacular catches, those 50-50 catches that can often be the difference between winning and losing. I thought he was fantastic at that. But there are a lot of other areas of his game that he really needed to clean up and improve on. He just had to polish himself. He had, he, George did not have access to the entire route tree, honestly, until maybe late in 2020. He started to see the light come on. We were moving him inside. He, he could basically only play the X receiver position. And that's why we didn't move him around as much. We started moving around a little bit more towards the end of 2020. He just wasn't as polished. It's just as simple as that. Coming to high school or coming into college out of high school, he can make those spectacular catches and same body control, but he just wasn't a fully polished receiver yet. And you shouldn't expect him to. AJ was just a more polished guy and could do everything that George could do in terms of winning the 50-50 ball, making those spectacular catches. I mean, I remember back the Colorado game. Was that 2010, right? The Colorado game, his first game back from suspension. He made that ridiculous, like, spinning, one-handed catch in the end zone. That was, like, right in front of me. I was sitting there right there in that end zone, and it was just in awe of the catch that he made. It's like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. And then like, we don't even really remember that catch all that much because we lost that game. You try to push that into the deep recesses of your mind. But AJ could absolutely make the insane catch look routine just like George. He had that great body control, strong hands just like George. I just thought AJ could do more as a more complete receiver than what George was. Plus, I just think AJ's more physically impressive. Now, they were both like tall and thin coming into college. I thought AJ was able to add on weight, especially once he got into the NFL. And I know that's not fair. George isn't quite there yet. But AJ was a little bit longer. I think AJ's faster than George. I know you can look at their times and it says four or five, but just watching those guys play, I thought AJ was a more impressive athlete. I mean, when AJ got into open field, and was just trucking, getting the end zone, that guy could flat out move. Like his gait, the way he runs, it was just gorgeous. And I just think he had that extra gear that I'm not sure that George has. George has very, very good speed. I don't think he quite has what AJ had in his prime. But I do think you can absolutely make an argument for George Pickens. I, again, I would just go back and say, I think that AJ could do everything that makes George special plus a little bit more. And that's just a personal preference thing for me. But for me, I would say AJ hands down. Okay, this next question, I love this, man. This is a three-part question. Paul, thank you, man. Paul's been like on fire with his mailbag questions. I love this, man. So, so Paul asks, it's portal season. So naturally, I have a question about potential transfers. Part one, would you rather add a difference maker at nose tackle or the five tech? Part two, would you rather add a difference maker at corner or at safety? Part three, if we could, would you rather add an elite pass rusher or an elite pass catcher? I'll try to run through this as fast as I can. These are great questions. This is a, this is a really fun question. So part one, would you rather add a difference maker at nose tackle or the five tech? I'm going to say nose tackle because that is critical in our defense. Maybe not as critical as it once was, like when teams were running I formation and they were running 
21 personnel at a time when they had real fullbacks that actually played football back in the day. You remember those days, guys? Those days of yesteryear? Yeah, those days don't happen anymore. So like back when Kirby had like Mount Cody, Terrence Cody at Alabama, when they were in their base defense 50% of the time, if not more, they typically had more of an impact on the game. Now Nowadays, with, with the proliferation of the spread offense, those nose tackles typically, most of them can't play a ton of downs, so they're being asked to run silent sideline, up-tempo, play after play, and they got to get off the field. Even Jordan Davis didn't play as many snaps as a lot of the, our, our other guys because he's just a bigger guy, and he gets worn out, gets tired, all those things. But Jordan, as I've said many times, was the key to our entire defense the past couple years because his presence allowed us to defend the run, dominate the run with even numbers in the box. Not just like be okay against the run with even numbers, but dominate against the run with even numbers because he just ate up so much space and just simply could not be moved. He was the immovable object no matter how many guys you put on him. And that freed everyone else up to just be flat out ballers out there. So to me... Even in this modern age of football, the nose tackle, if you get a dominant one like Jordan Davis, if you can say, all right, Tyler, dominant nose tackle or dominant five tech, I'm taking a dominant nose tackle all day long. The five tech is an important position in our defense because it's hard to find body types like that, that are like in between a defensive tackle and outside linebacker, like Trayvon Walker. Those guys are hard to find, just like it's hard to find guys like Jordan Davis. Those guys don't grow on trees. But that position, you can go out, you can take an athletic defensive tackle like Jalen Carter potentially and slide him out and play the five tech. He can do that. He makes a 300 pounder. He can play the five tech and play it very, very well. So I just think the nose tackle is more important in our defense than the five tech. So I would take a nose tackle, an impact nose tackle if we can find a guy there. Uh, Part two, would you rather add a difference maker at corner or at safety? Well, for this particular team, I would take corner. And for most teams, I would take corner. Again, that's just a harder position to find. A guy that can absolutely just... I don't think anyone can be a lockdown corner anymore. I've said that several times in the past. I don't think with the way the rules have changed and the way games are officiated now, I don't think you're allowed to be a shutdown corner anymore. Rules just favor the offense. But guys that are as close as you can get to what used to be a shutdown corner, those guys are harder to find than a guy that can play safety. Safeties are basically, in my opinion, like just less athletic corners, more or less, that are also sometimes bigger and can also, you know, if you're a box safety, you can roll up there and you can have run fits, all those kind of things. There's some other differences. But to me, it's just harder to find an elite corner than it is to find an elite safety. And plus, for this this specific team, we have Chris Smith coming back, returning starter there. We have, at the very least, Dan Jackson coming back, who's got starting experience there. Played about 50% of our snaps, very close to it last year. And you got a guy like David Daniel coming back, who I'm very high on. I liked what I know he's a small sample size, but I liked what I saw from him. Tyke Smith's a guy that can cross-train and potentially fill in his safety. So I feel pretty good about where we are at safety. Not to mention Malachi Starks coming as a true freshman. Now, it's kind of hard to expect a true freshman and come in and be that guy, but he is uber talented. If anyone can do it, it could be a guy like that. So for me, um, I'm going to go corner, especially when you have a, a position wide open opposite Keely Ringo. I would go impact corner this year if we can find one. And finally, would you rather add an elite pass rusher or an elite pass catcher? Man, that's tough. Because for a long time, the way I've always looked at it is, okay, the three most important positions on the field were quarterback, because that's the most important position, then left tackle, or at least the blind side tackle, because that's the guy that protects the best player on the team. And then you're an elite pass rusher because that's the guy that can affect the best player on the team. But now I think you have to start looking at receivers. I mean, those guys in many ways, they're certainly not as important as quarterback, but I think they might have, you can maybe say an elite receiver 
has now jumped elite pass rusher in that pecking order because of the way the game has changed and how offensive things have become. And I think it's just easier to take like an elite pass rusher out of the game. You can double or triple him. Nah, tripling is hard, but you can chip him. There's things you can do to, I don't say completely take them out of the game, but you can limit their impact more so than you can a wide receiver, an elite wide receiver. Yeah, you can put a safety over the top and that kind of thing, but then you got somebody else one-on-one. If you have anybody that's just got a pulse out there that's halfway decent that can win one-on-one, then that receiver is still having a major impact. I guess you can maybe say something about a pass rusher, but I think to a lesser degree. So honestly, I know I'm an old defensive guy, but I think I'm going to have to say, especially for our offense and our team right now, we have a guy like Nolan Smith coming back. And I would, don't get me wrong, I would love to have an elite pass rusher. This is a tough question. And here's another part to this too. It's how the game is officiated. That matters, guys. The quarterback is just now protected to an absurd degree. So as a defensive player in general, but specifically as a pass rusher whose job is explicitly to go after the quarterback, to go get the quarterback, your job, your impact, your ability to make an impact is just made a little bit more difficult than it is for a receiver on the other side, which has been the, a position that's been the beneficiary of how the game has evolved from an officiating standpoint over the past decade or so, where now defensive backs essentially just aren't even allowed to touch a receiver. So I think that has to factor into your decision as well. You really can't go wrong with either one because any elite team needs both of those positions to be at an elite level. But if I had to pick one, I think in this day and age, I think I'm going to go receiver, even as an old defensive guy myself. All right, with this next question, here's an example of one of the questions that was just sent in like within the past 24 hours that kind of got shot to the top of the list because of the topical nature of the question. So Chuck asks, with the Rams Super Bowl win last night, is Matthew Stafford now a Hall of Famer? And look, you guys know I, I make it pretty clear that I'm a college guy first and foremost. I watch professional sports, but I'm much more of a casual fan of professional sports, so I certainly do not consider myself an expert on the NFL, but I know enough to be able to say I think Matthew Stafford now, with a Super Bowl ring added to his resume, I think this guy is a lock for the Hall of Fame. He's always had the stats. I mean, right now, I think he's 12th all-time in passing yards, I think something like that. I think I saw that somewhere. But if you look at the numbers a little bit more closely, I mean, Matthew Stafford's what, 33? I think he's 33 right now, 33, 34. He's got at least a good four or five years left. So this is a guy that's a former 5,000-yard passer in a single season. So let's say just conservatively, if he stays healthy, that over the next, let's just say again, conservatively, over the next four years, that he puts up another 16,000 yards passing. I think that's a very conservative estimate right now. And if he does that, then he's going to pass John Elway, Eli Manning, Dan Marino, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, and he'll probably stop there. I don't think he'll get inside the top four. I think Matthew Stafford absolutely has a very legitimate chance by the time his career is all said and done, he hangs it up, that he's going to be a top five passer in NFL history in terms of passing yards. He's also top five nationally right now already in fourth quarter game-winning drives. I think he's behind uh, Tom Brady. I think it's Drew Brees, Ben Roethlisberger, and Peyton Manning, I believe, are the four guys ahead of him right now. So if you're in that kind of company and then you punctuate it 
with a fourth quarter, two minute game winning drive to win the Super Bowl without Odell Beckham, without your starting tight end, Tyler Higby, with basically just you and Cooper Cup out there, I think that seals the deal for him. And hey, I mean, this guy took the Detroit Lions to three playoff appearances. And I know that like quarterbacks aren't measured on how many times you take your team to the playoffs. But when you were the quarterback for the Detroit Lions and that franchise, that absolutely should factor in the equation. He took him to three playoffs in six years, 2011, 2014, 2016, in a six-year span, three playoff appearances when they hadn't had a playoff appearance prior to 2011 since 1999. So that's got to count for something. And then honestly, just that throw last night, that throw on that final drive, the no-look pass, the bullet no-look pass to Cooper Cup. That was, I'm not even kidding, guys, the greatest throw I think I've ever seen in my life. Degree of difficulty, and if you factor in context, situation, final drive of the Super Bowl to pull off that throw in that moment, that's literally out of this stratosphere. And I caught that live. I When I saw it happen live, I was like, did he just throw a no-look pass? And I, I paused it and had to go back like 10 times and watch again like to confirm that I saw what I just saw because I couldn't believe what I just saw. And of course, the whole world is kind of caught on by now. And I, I, I'll stand by that. I think it might be the greatest throw that I've ever seen in my life. It was like a trick throw on a game-winning last-second drive in the Super Bowl. So that alone, honestly, should probably put him in the Hall of Fame. I mean, obviously, no, I'm kidding. But like that is just emblematic, though, of the kind of talent that Matthew Stafford has. And we always knew that. No one ever questioned that. I was like, well, can he win? I think this also helps him out, too. His first year leaving Detroit, his first year away from that franchise, he goes on to win the Super Bowl. I think that, to tell you right there, that it was never a Stafford problem. It was always a Detroit Lions problem, as it basically has been for the entire history of that franchise. As soon as Stafford gets away from that, gets to a real team with real talent and real commitment to winning, oh, huh, what happens? Not only does he win a playoff game, he actually wins the freaking Super Bowl. So to me, that sealed the deal for him. Hands down, Matthew Stafford is a NFL future Hall of Famer. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, next question here is from Greg. Uh, this is a, this is a fun question. Greg asks, "What will Kirby Smart's annual compensation be when the inevitable contract extension is announced?" And guys, I, I mean, I know it's kind of been reported in, in different circles, but that is very much in the works. That is, as Greg says, absolutely an inevitability at this point. It's just a matter of how much it's going to be. Those talks are going very well. Kirby wants to be here. Obviously, our administration wants him to be here. So it's just a matter of crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and that deal will get done. I mean, Josh Brooks flat out said as much at our last athletic board meeting, which was what, like two weeks ago? 
It's just a matter of how much. And so right now, if you guys aren't aware, he gets paid $7.1 million as his base salary. He did get like an $850,000 bonus for the playoff run. I think only $200,000 for the national title. And if you think about how much that meant to me and our collective fan base, all of you guys out there, I mean, that's a steal. He should have gotten an extra $7 million just for winning the title. But only a $200,000 bonus there. He's going to get a massive bump here. I mean, just to give you guys an idea, Lane Kiffin, who's has Lane Kiffin ever won anything? 7.25 million. He gets paid more, at least in terms of his base salary, than Kirby does right now. Obviously, Jimbo Fisher does. We know that. Uh, Mario Cristobal now has been bumped up to 8 million, taking the job in Miami. Dabo gets paid like 8.3, 8.5, somewhere around there. I think David Shaw at Stanford, by surprise, he gets paid basically $9 million at Stanford. He's like in the top five right now. Uh, here's the one Mel Tucker, former, I don't say Kirby protege, but former defensive coordinator under Kirby, gets paid just a hair under $10 million now with the extension he signed to lock him up during the 2021 season. So here's what I would say. There is no way that Kirby Smart will not get paid more than Mel Tucker. I don't see any way in hell. The only way that doesn't happen is if Kirby Smart does not want it to happen. Like, and what I mean by that is if Kirby Smart wants to save some money for his assistant coaches, have a, a higher assistant coach pool. If he wants to take some, some of that money and say, all right, you guys keep some of this so we can continue to do enhancements to our football facilities and other athletic department facilities, all those kind of things. Maybe if it's out of the kindness of Kirby's own heart, maybe he would take a little bit less than Mel. But there's no way that man is worth less than Mel Tucker. Again, what has Mel Tucker done? Mel Tucker is a fine football coach. I have a lot of respect for him. But that man hasn't won a single playoff game in his life, not one single game. As a head coach, Kirby's won three won a national title. I mean, it's got to be at least 10 million, right? It's got to be at least 10 million or at least right around there. I think Nick Saban's base technically is 9.7, something like that, just under 10 million. But you know, that's not all that Nick Saban gets, but it's got to be hovering around a nine and a half, $10 million. I think he's got to get more than Mel Tucker. I think Brian Kelly's getting nine and a half at LSU. Brian Kelly has never won a national title. Lincoln Riley, also another guy who hasn't ever won a national title, is getting 10 plus million if reports are to be believed there with USC. So I think he's got to be around that $10 million range. All right, next up, let's go with uh, this. Let's go with Paul. Paul's got a recruiting question. This is the only recruiting question we're going to go with today. We talked a lot of recruiting a couple weeks ago with signing day. We're going to talk more recruiting later this week with Curtis, but we'll go with one recruiting question here on this mailbag episode. So Paul asks, does Georgia really have a realistic shot to sign Arch Manning? Give us a percentage. And I'm going with this question, Dave, because we are now fully headfirst into the 2023 recruiting cycle, which Arch Manning is a part of. And you've heard the name for a while now, but it was always kind of in the abstract because it was like a ways away down the road. I mean, we were, we were hearing about this guy when he was a freshman and a sophomore, but now he's going to be a senior next year. He's going to be a part of this next class. So it's go time now. We've been hanging around, hanging around. He came and visited for a game earlier this year, had a heck of a time. At least if you listened and read all those reports came out of that unofficial visit. And as I tell you guys every time we talk about recruiting, I do not call the prospects. I've never talked to Archie Manning. I don't know anyone that knows Archie Manning. I have no idea. But just reading between the lines, based on all the stuff I'm sure a lot of you guys have consumed, it seems like we are very, very, very much in this. We've been actively recruiting him for a while. I know this might surprise some of you guys because they were former enemies on the field. Obviously, Kirby as a safety here in Athens and Peyton Manning being what Peyton Manning was at Tennessee, and they played against each other. They're actually pretty good friends. So they have a really good relationship. 
Kirby has a good relationship with the entire Manning family. So there, there is that going for us. Of course, he's not the only coach recruiting Arch that has a good relationship with him and the family. But that certainly does not hurt us, nor does the fact that we just won national championship. I know people want to point out and say, well, you know, what about quarterback development? Like Kirby can't develop quarterbacks. I think, honestly, that Stetson Bennett is the greatest quarterback development story of the past decade. Like, you can rip Kirby all you want for the decision to play Stetson all year. Honestly, I think he's vindicated now. I don't know if you can really actually criticize him now for, for that decision. But if you still want to criticize him, that's fine. I know Curtis still likes to criticize him on this show. That's fine. That That's your prerogative. You're welcome to do that. But you can't on one hand say, oh my God, this guy is a no-talent, former walk-on that's got no business playing at the University of Georgia. And now at the same time, look at the jump that he made, even from 2020 to 2021, and the fact that this former nobody walk-on has got no talent just helped lead us to a national title. You can't say those things about Stetson and then look at the results without admitting that was an incredible quarterback development story. And if Stetson does have as little talent as everyone says, look, we know that Stetson obviously has some some very real physical limitations, but if, if we were able to develop him to the degree that we did with the tools that he has to work with, imagine what we could do with a guy like Archie Manning that has the tools that he has to work with. I think you'd actually make that work for you when you're trying to sell a quarterback the caliber of Archie Manning to come play for you, even though Stetson Bennett was the guy this year. I really think if you do it right, which we know Kirby will, you can make that work for you. But by all reports, it's down to really three schools. That's what you keep hearing. It's Georgia, Texas, and Alabama. I don't think he's going to go to Alabama. And part of that is because Bama is trending heavily right now for another big-time quarterback, the number three quarterback in the 2023 class, number four player overall. I, I think this guy's last name is pronounced Lama Leva, another California quarterback, 6'5", about 200-pounder. 200 this time around, obviously, a little bit bigger, a lot, a lot bigger than Bryce Young, but another guy from California. So they end up getting him. They're not going to get him and Arch Manning. So I think that could make it down to Georgia and Texas potentially. And obviously we know Steve Sarkeesian's history putting quarterbacks in the NFL. But if we can keep Todd Munkin around, and who knows, we'll see what happens there. I don't know how long he'll be here. But if we can keep him around, we we have another guy who can say, I've worked in the NFL. I've worked with big-time quarterbacks. And, I mean, he's a guy who put Brandon Whedon in the NFL. So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh yeah, just go ahead and take it to the bank. We're going to land Arch Manning. But I absolutely think, based off of everything you hear and read out there, that we are very, very, very much in the thick of things. In fact, potentially one of his finalists. I know, yeah, so you wanted a percentage. Oh man, this is tough. Percentages, they're always kind of arbitrary, but asking you shall receive. I'm just grabbing this out of thin air. But again, just based off reports and what you read, I would say, honestly, I would put us probably like, um, I think 50-50 right now. I think that Bama is probably going to end up getting the other guy, Lamaliva, and I leaves as of right now, barring changes, and it's it's still early in the process. All the quarterbacks do tend to commit earlier than other guys in, in a class, kind of be that leader that everyone rallies around. I think Art certainly has that charisma and name recognition that could be an attraction to other prospects. So I do imagine he'll probably try to commit before the summer or sometime early in the summer. And if that's the case, I think it's probably going to be us or Texas. And if it's two teams, then I'd say 50-50 right now, which is about as much as you can ask for at this point in the process. And finally today, that brings us to our last question, 
which is actually going to be a basketball question. I saved this one for last. We're going to get all the football stuff out there. I know we talked a little bit of basketball last week on the show, but we have a follow-up question that I wanted to address here, and this is from Will. So I appreciate this, Will. Uh, Will says, I really appreciate you doing a basketball episode. You're welcome. And laying out a hot board. That's the first one I've seen, and it's hard to find much Georgia sports talk outside of football. But you didn't tell us who your number one choice would be. So if you are Josh Brooks and you're making your first major hire, who is your guy? Good question, Will, and you're right. I, I divided up my hot board into tiers. I threw a bunch of names out there, but I didn't identify one particular guy. And that was by design because I wanted to let it play out a little bit more and to see who were, who was actually a realistic option for this job. And I think as we get closer and closer to March, you're going to hear more and more names. And there is going to be a parsing of some of those names right now. I mean, I threw out a bunch of names as possibilities, basically a bunch of guys that are are low major coaches who I think could be the next big guy or some former high major guys who are looking for a chance to kind of rehabilitate their career. That's kind of what we're looking at right now. So I just threw a bunch of names out there. But I didn't really identify a single guy that I'm saying that's the guy I want. I did that by design. I was going to save that for later. But since you're bringing it up, we'll again ask and you shall receive. I'll give you a name. This is hard though. Like one single guy, the top of my wish list to be a guy like Rick Pitino, who's, as I said last week, if you didn't hear the episode, I think arguably one of the, I think arguably the greatest actual coach of basketball in maybe college basketball history. I didn't go back to John Wood. That was a different era. But I mean, coaching the game basketball, Rick Pitino is as good as it gets, but scandal pretty much always follows Rick Pitino wherever he goes, and knowing our program, there's no way that we're going to entertain hiring Rick Pitino, so that might be a guy that if I could hire anybody, be him, but that's just not realistic, so I don't want to give you a name like that. I want to give you like a realistic name, so to answer this question, I'm going to take a name off of the tier, what did I call that tier? I think I called it reach hires. Guys, I think you have to call and see if they have any interest in listening, but you also have to understand at the same time that it's going to be quite the reach to expect us to land a guy like that, but it's possible. So the guy I'm going to go with here, if I could call anybody and say, I want you to be my head coach and he's going to take the job, it would be probably be Wes Miller at Cincinnati. And you're probably saying the Cincinnati coach. Wes Miller was uh, up until last year at UNC Greensboro, former North Carolina player. A lot of people wanted him. A lot of people in the North Carolina fan base wanted him to be their next coach and not Hubert Davis. I have a lot of extended family members that live in North Carolina, are North Carolina fans. So um, I have a, you know, a little bit of insight into that fan base and, and what their mentality is. A lot of people wanted him. You know, Hubert's the guy who has no head coaching experience, was basically anointed the next head coach by Roy Williams. But Wes had a lot of people that supported him within that fan base. But he didn't get the job, and he ends up going to Cincinnati. And he's doing a good job there. I think they're 16-8 right now. But one of the things that I said that was critical in this next hire is it has to be somebody that's proven that they can rebuild a program, that's taken on a rebuild and done a fantastic job doing that. And Wes Miller has nailed that. If you look at UNC Greensboro... In the four years before he took over, they were 33-91 and 91 combined over those four years. That's a 26% winning percentage. In his last five years, his final five years in that job, he turned the program around to where they were 125-43 and 43 over his last five years with two NCAA tournament appearances out of the Southern Conference. That's a 74% winning percentage. That is the definition of turning a program around. 
He's also young and has the reputation as a player's coach, which is another part of my criteria. I think in this day and age, you cannot be a tyrant. In the transfer portal era, guys will leave. You're gonna have a tough time attracting guys to replace them if you have that reputation as this kind of dictatorial tyrant. You just can't be that. And that is something that I think fits what Wes Miller brings to the table. So he's a guy that'd be number one on my list. Now, the concern there is, first and foremost, if something happens to Hubert Davis, they might North Carolina might not make the tournament this year. And if they don't this year and don't again next year because the recruiting class doesn't look great next year, then there's a chance that Hubert might not last that long. And then you got to imagine they're going to go after Wes Miller if that job opens up. So he might not be here long, but hopefully he would be here long enough to be able to get our program on the right track to where we're more attracted to the next coach after that. So if I get anyone, I would go Wes Miller, at least in terms of realistic options, relatively realistic options. That would be my guy. Now, could we get a guy like him because he was on my my reach tier? I have my doubts. He's at Cincinnati right now, which by any objective measure is a better basketball job right now. I think we have a higher ceiling, but we're much further away from our ceiling than where Cincinnati is right now. It's a very good, stable basketball program. They care about their basketball program, which I don't know if you can say about Georgia athletics all the time. It'd be tough to get him away from that situation, but well, I think what you have to do if you're Josh Brooks, if that's the guy you want, again, that's the guy I want right now. There's some other guys, Nico Medvev, I'd be extraordinarily happy with. The guy from Colorado State. So another, a number of other names but might be the top two on my list right now. But I think what you have to do is, like, I think he's making like $1.3 million right now. You put down $5 million in front of him, say $5 million a year, $5 million a year. And if you're getting paid $1.3 million and you get offered $5 million, that that is something you have to at least consider. You have to at least entertain it. I'm not saying it would be enough, but hopefully there'd be enough to at least get his attention. And we would see what Cincinnati would do. Would they try to match that? I honestly don't know if Cincinnati has the wherewithal financially to be able to match that. We'll see. But that's what I would do and make him say no. And he might say no, probably would say no, but I would absolutely make him say no. But all right, guys, that does it for me today here on the Glory UGA podcast. Thank you guys for all the questions that you sent in. They were great questions. I know we have a lot more, unfortunately. I just got to get out of here and go take care of some uh, some personal business. But Curtis and I will be back later this week with our deep dive into this 2022 recruiting class. We'll go deeper than we have at this point. We've kind of touched on some things on the surface a little bit here, but we're going to go deep on this analysis on Wednesday night, early Thursday, depending on whenever it actually ends up getting loaded. But we'll record it on Wednesday night. So thank you guys for listening. We'll have more for you later this week. I'm your host, Tyler. And as always, go dog.